Luke 7, 36 through 50. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Amen. Well, welcome, everyone. So good to have you this morning. My name is Johnny. I am one of the pastors here at Missio, and we are so delightful. Delightful? We are so delightful to have you. (laughs) Uh, We are in a series right now entitled Party Crasher. We started the series last week and are continuing on in it today. And throughout this series, what we're doing is we are looking at 10 different party stories that show up in the book of Luke. Luke, the gospel author, includes a ton of parties, both party stories and stories about parties Jesus actually attended. I was trying to do the math on it, and I said this last week, but if you just take it per percentage, almost 41% of the book is just parties Jesus went to. Some of these are parties that Jesus attended, Some of them are parties that Jesus hosted. Some are parties that Jesus unceremoniously crashes. But these are actual parties, real stories of Jesus being with people, of Jesus celebrating with people, of Jesus having meals with people, of actually being at a table with people doing life together. And what we're discovering throughout this conversation and these parties is that Jesus— really liked to party. That might sound strange, but I love this about Jesus, because sometimes we treat Jesus like a sanctimonious religious other, and we forget that Jesus loved to be with people. 
That Jesus loved to gather at tables, that Jesus loved to be with his friends, that Jesus loved to share life with others. One of my favorite stories that we'll look at at the very end of this series is when Jesus is doing the Last Supper with his disciples. And he says before eating with them, I have longed to have this meal with you. Which I think is so beautiful because I've been there. Where a moment with your friends at a table feels comforting. Jesus loved to be with his friends. He loved to celebrate. He loved to meet new people. He was even comforted by the presence of the people around them. Jesus loved to party. And not only did Jesus like to go to parties, but Jesus also liked to talk about parties. He told stories all throughout his ministry of kingly banquets, wedding feasts with unlikely guests. My favorite parable, as many of you know, is the parable of the prodigal son. And that's in Luke 15, which is the climactic end of four different party stories that go from Luke chapter 14 all the way to the end of 15. Every single one of them resolves around a party. Some parties for the strangest of things, like finding a missing coin or a lost sheep, which would kind of be like throwing a party every time you found your missing keys. It doesn't make any sense, but Jesus is like, let's have a reason to party and we'll find it wherever we can. Jesus loved to party. He loved to talk about parties. Something about parties, something about meals, something about tables and celebrations were central to Jesus' own self-understanding, how he thought about himself, how he thought about his work in the world, how he thought about what he was here to do. And New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says it really beautifully, what these parties mean for Jesus. He says this, In telling party stories, Jesus is explaining and vindicating his own practice of eating with sinners. His celebratory meals are the equivalent in real life of the parties in his stories. What is more, Jesus is claiming that when he does all this, God is doing it. When Jesus parties and tells party stories, he is showing us what God is like. When Jesus eats with sinners and outcasts, we are getting a window into the very nature of our God. When Jesus sits across from Pharisees and religious experts and confronts their pride or their exclusion, we are seeing a picture of what God is like. And when Jesus celebrates the inclusion of the most unlikely of guests at his dinner parties, we are seeing a picture of what our God is like like parties and party stories are essential because they show us what God is like. So throughout our series, we are going to be looking at these different parties to see what they show us about God and what they show us God is up to in the world. We started last week in Luke chapter 5, where Jesus parties with tax collectors. And it's a beautiful story of God's indiscriminate love poured out to people who culturally don't get invited to a lot of parties. Today, we're moving into Luke chapter 7, which was read for us just a second ago. And in some ways, this party is the exact opposite of the kind of party we saw last week. Last week, Jesus was with tax collectors and outsiders, people who have been culturally deemed not worthy of a party. And today, Jesus is invited to a party at religious leaders' homes. And it is a group of people who represent insiders. These are cultural elites. They represent respect and repute. 
expectation. So it is a very different kind of party, but the question is still the same. What do we learn about our God from this party? Party story begins in Luke 7, verse 36, and here's what the text says. It says, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. This is pretty early in Jesus' ministry. We're only in Luke chapter 7. He's just gathered his disciples with him, but he is quickly becoming famous in the ancient world. Reports of his miracles are spreading. Reports of his teachings are spreading all throughout the ancient world. And rumor is that Jesus is some kind of prophet or potentially even Messiah. So a Pharisee named Simon begins to hear reports about Jesus. Maybe he's even seen him do some work, do some ministry, do a miracle, and he invites him to dinner. In the ancient world, Pharisees are pretty important figures. It's easy today to sort of villainize them because we read them through the lens of the gospel. We like know how the story goes. But in the ancient world, they were highly respected. They were sort of like the heroes of the ancient Israelite people. They were keepers of Israel's law. They were keepers of Israel's religious story. They preserved and protected like the culture and the nation of Israel. They are seen as people you should look up to and respect and admire. And so a Pharisee hears about this teacher named Jesus who is growing in Fame, and as a Pharisee, as a protector, as a steward, as a guardian, as a teacher yourself, it's your job in some ways to invite this dude over to your house and have dinner with him. You're an important guy. Jesus is becoming an important guy. You should have dinner. That's what you do in this moment. And part of it would be to check Jesus out and understand if he's legit or not. But dinners in the ancient world, similar to our own dinners today, are really about reputation management. If you're important, you host important people. If you're important, you go to important dinners. Jesus later in his party stories will actually criticize a practice of giving important people important places at the table. Everything about the dinner moment is about curating reputation. You go to parties with people who are important because it makes you look important, and you invite important people over because it makes you look important, and you sit at the right place at the table because the closer you are to the host, the closer you are to the center of action, the more important you are. So in many ways, Simon is hosting this party for Jesus, but it's not about Jesus. It is about what Jesus can do for Simon, about how he can bolster his reputation, about how it looks on your resume, about how things important people do. They have dinner with other important people. So Simon invites Jesus over. And what I love about Jesus is that Jesus goes. Simon might have a ton of bad reasons for having Jesus there, but guess what? Jesus is still there. And Jesus comes to this party, and then it says this really important detail that will help us understand what comes next. It says that Jesus reclines at the table. This is going to make sense of something that happens just a second later in the story. But ancient dinners don't look like modern dinners in that people did not sit in chairs. You're like, no chairs, you say? How did they eat? Let me show you. I'm glad you asked. Here is a picture. <laughs> no, you're all right. 
<laughs> Here's a picture of a group of, of friendly gentlemen having a dinner, <laughs> having a dinner in an ancient Roman style. And you notice that they are leaning into the table on sofas or couches. I like this dude over here on my left. I don't know what he's squeezing into his mouth, but it looks like it's a good time. This is how an ancient dinner would have looked. You didn't have chairs. That doesn't happen really until later, closer to the time of the Renaissance. Here, and in the ancient world, you would lean into the table. If you were wealthy, you might have couches like this that people could sit on and lean towards. If you're just like a regular family, you'd have carpets with cushions and pillows, and the table would be laid on the ground. And so Jesus takes his position, maybe this guy with the little dog, You didn't notice that, did you? I've had a lot of time just to look at this photo. Jesus leans in towards the table, and it helps us understand what happens next. As Jesus is leaning in towards the table, it says, Meanwhile, a woman from the city, a person known as a sinner, discovered that Jesus was dining in the Pharisee's house, and so she brought perfumed oil in a vase made of alabaster. And standing behind him, at his feet and crying, she began to wet his feet with her tears. She wiped them with her hair, she kissed them, and she poured oil on them. The woman is like standing sort of at the back of that sofa area, where Jesus' feet would have been hanging off the back. Now we know very little about this woman. The text says that she is a sinner, but it is important to say we don't know what that means. The Bible does not clarify. It doesn't say. Tradition has often described her as a sex worker, but that is not what the text actually says. She could have been a sex worker. Jesus spent time with women in the sex industry, but it doesn't actually say that. Sinner in this context is a pejorative term to describe someone outside the boundaries, morally, culturally, and socially. She's a person who is seen through a very specific category of does not belong, is not worthy of this party, does not have a place at this table. Why that is, we don't know. That's a gap for us to fill with our own stories. But what we know is that she is rejected, known by everyone here, or at least known by enough people here to be described as a sinner. And this woman who is described this way, seen this way, and categorically understood this way, hears that Jesus is at Simon's house, and she does the craziest, bravest, arguably reckless thing a woman in the ancient world with a bad reputation can do. She goes to this party. It is a party of elite religious leaders. The consequences to entering this party could be massive. They could shame her, they could exclude her, they could reject her, and if she is a sex worker, they could condemn her. We see that same kind of thing happen in John chapter 8. When to trick and trap Jesus, the Pharisees and the religious leaders find a woman somehow who's been committing adultery, and they drag her before Jesus for a public execution. Same thing could have happened in this moment, and yet she chooses to enter into this party. She stands behind Jesus, who is reclining at the table. She cries. She wipes his feet. And I don't know about you, but like, I think I've read this story a lot. And so 
it feels like a very beautiful image, but the more I thought about it, the more I was like, this would just be so startling to witness. It would just be a wildly scandalous event. Like, regardless of who she is, regardless of why she has the reputation of sinner, she is a woman who has a bad reputation. She enters this home and arguably makes a scene. It is probably a prim, proper, boring dinner. Not as fun as the photo. It's a bunch of religious people. I, don't, I mean, religious dinners aren't always that fun. And she begins to cry. She unravels her hair. She kisses Jesus' feet. I just think if I'm being honest, and if I was at this dinner, I would be like, um, Jesus, what are you doing, Doug? This is weird. <laughs> like if I went to your house and this happened to you, I'd be like, what? What are you doing? <laughs> Do you know this lady? Like how does this interaction come about, sir? I just think if we can put ourselves in the position of not reading it sort of through our religious lens and see it as a cultural moment, you're like, this is a wild experience. And you can hear it in Simon because Simon sees this and he is like, this is what he says. He says to himself, when Simon the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw what was happening and he said to himself, what? If this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. He would know that she is a sinner. This woman has a reputation, and it is such a reputation that it is beginning to call Jesus' into question. And so Simon concludes that Jesus is not a prophet. Either he doesn't know who she is, which means he's not a prophet because he should be able to know these things, or he knows and he doesn't care, which brings to Simon's mind probably a whole other slew of questions, which is like, hey, Jesus, why do you know this lady? Why is she so excited to see you? I love what happens next in this story. Simon is thinking this, this weird, scandalous, startling event has occurred and as Simon is thinking to himself about how Jesus is not a prophet, Jesus addresses him. Simon, I have something to say to you. Can you just imagine? You're just like in your mind, you're like, this dude is not a prophet. And he's like, he's Simon. You're like, oh God. <laughs> yes, teacher. Jesus said a certain lender had two debtors who owed enough money. One who owed enough money to pay 500 people for a day's work. The other owed enough money for 50. When either of them couldn't pay, the lender forgave the debts of both of them. Which will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the largest debt canceled. Jesus tells the story, and then he ends it with this statement that I just think is so beautiful. He says, you have judged correctly. Then Jesus turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? The answer to that question is no. Simon does not see her. Jesus presented this story and this question in the midst of this startling moment because he is a prophet who knows exactly what Simon is thinking. And it is not that he sees this woman. It is instead that he sees a category. Simon only sees a moral evaluation that he has made of her. She is a sinner who does not belong here. 
And the truth is, as we're reading this story, Simon does not see very much at all. He doesn't see Jesus. At first, Jesus is invited because it's going to bolster his reputation. And now, Jesus looks a bit like a false prophet. Simon does not see. Simon does a moral evaluation of Jesus and of this woman, and now neither of them belong at his table. And I think that also reveals that Simon does not really see himself. He's done this like personal moral evaluation and he sees himself as a good guy as he's running the numbers and like doing the math. He's looking at his own life and the woman's and he's like, I'm in, they're obviously out. This is weird. Take your party somewhere else. I'm going to have my own. But then Jesus tells this story about debts and forgiveness. And in a way, I feel like he's looking at Simon and he's like, hey dude, your math is so wrong. You think you are better because you have made religiously right decisions or because your table is well curated, but that is not how this works. And because of your math and your moral evaluations and your categories that are bigger than your love, you cannot see this woman, you cannot see yourself, and you can't even see me who is God at your table with you. There's a strange thing that happens to us that is a part of the Christian experience where when we really genuinely have encounters with love that is good and that is deep and that is safe and that is empowering, when we really encounter the love of God, something very strange happens to us. We get honest. Real love has a way of freeing us to be honest with God and ourself and with others. It challenges categories and helps us see who we really are. There's this moment from the life of Paul that kind of reminds me of what's happening in this story. He's writing a letter to his young disciple, Timothy, and he says this thing that I just think is funny and interesting, and it's an interesting reveal about how Paul holds his own weightiness. Paul is writing a letter to Timothy, and he says this, hey, this is saying is reliable and deserves full acceptance. Here's a good saying, a good axiom for leadership. Christ came into the world to save sinners, and I am the biggest one of them all. I love this because if Paul, if anybody can claim moral superiority, it is Paul. He spent the last couple of years of his life in prison because of his preaching of the gospel. He's two years away from martyrdom at this point in the story. He's written countless letters correcting the church, guiding the church, shepherding the church. If anybody can claim moral superiority, Paul, it could be him. He could look at his life and be like, I am better than the church that keeps getting this wrong, and you should listen to me because of it. But instead, Paul is like, hey, if you want to be in the know, know this. I am pretty bad. (laughs) So I'm the biggest of sinners. I'm not better than the churches that I'm writing to. I'm not better than my guards of Rome who've imprisoned me. I am the biggest of sinners. And Paul is not saying this because he's like in this frame of reference. It's like, whoa, it's me. I am a miserable sinner, a worm. That's not Paul's frame of reference because in verse 14, he starts this conversation saying, our Lord's favor all over me. 
along with the faithfulness and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying that I've experienced such love that I can just be honest with who I am and what I've done in the world. It's a kind of love that I think explodes categories or moral evaluations. It is a kind of love that upends hierarchies that we build, and it sets us all on level ground as we chase into our honest humanity because we have been freed and empowered by a love that does not shame us. One of my favorite Christian writers is a guy by the name of Brendan Manning. I want to read you a quote from him that I think sums this up so well. Manning was a priest, but he also struggled consistently through his life with alcoholism, which I think makes sense of what he writes here. He says this, When I get honest, I admit that I am a bundle of paradoxes. I believe and I doubt. I hope and I get discouraged. I love and I hate. I feel bad about feeling good. I feel guilty about not feeling guilty. I'm trusting and suspicious. I am honest and yet I still play games. Aristotle said I'm a rational animal. I say I'm an angel with an incredible capacity for beer. To live by grace means to acknowledge my whole life story, the light and the dark. In admitting my shadow side, I learn who I am and what God's grace means. My deepest awareness of myself is that I am deeply loved by Jesus. And I have done nothing to earn it or deserve it. The woman in this story is honest. And Jesus says her great love shows it. But Simon is not honest. He's playing the game. He's doing moral calculations. But the truth is he does not have to. Simon is invited into love. The parable that Jesus tells includes both people being forgiven. And the point of the story is that, yeah, one debt is less, but they are both massive. I don't know about you, I don't have the money to pay 50 workers one day's wage, let alone 500 workers one day's wage. Both feel like impossible odds for me. Simon is invited to see himself, to see this woman and her gifts, and to see that Jesus is God himself at Simon's party. It will just require some risks in honesty. I want to rewind just a tad bit here. Because my favorite moment in the story, we kind of glassed right over. Jesus is sort of correcting and confronting Simon. But as he does, he does something that I just think is so wonderful. In verse 44, right after he's told the parable, it says, Then Jesus turned to the woman. Jesus turns away from the party, away from Simon away from all the religious pretense and reputation management, and he begins to look at her. She's entered this home unsure of what is going to happen. It is a dangerous place for her to be. But in bravely and recklessness and in love, she enters to be with Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He turns to be with her. To me, this is the moment in this story 
where the party reveals such good news. Jesus confronts the Pharisees for their exclusion and their pride and their moral evaluation and the categories they've placed on themselves and onto her and onto himself. And he turns towards her. He enters into her reputation, into her story, into her danger. Missio, that's a picture of God. So no matter where you are or who you are or what reputation you carry, Jesus always turns to be with us. As I was reading this moment, it reminds me of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Right at the end, verse 5 and 6, the psalmist says this, you set a table for me right in front of my enemies. You bathe my head in oil. My cup is so filled that it spills over. Yes, your goodness and love and faithfulness will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will live in the Lord's house as long as I live In the presence of her enemies, her accusers, Jesus turns to be with her. He turns his back on his own party, the one that is thrown for him to party with her. And then he celebrates her. Jesus says to Simon in verse 44 through 46, When I entered your home, you didn't give me water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has poured perfume all over. This is scandalous because of who she's perceived to be and how personal these gestures are, but at the same time, the things that she does for him are sort of normal gestures of hospitality in the ancient world. And they're all things that should have happened when Jesus arrived at Simon's house. Normally, if you entered into a party, there would be a foot washing station. You wore sandals. Roman roads are dirty. Nobody wants it on their couch. There should have been a foot washing station for you to get cleaned up, to get ready for dinner. Remember when Jesus washes the disciples' feet before the Last Supper? That's standard protocol. What's different is that it comes from her. But Simon should have done that. He should have provided that. And Jesus says, you didn't greet me with a kiss. Well, that's normal. Normally, a guest come to your house. You would be like, hey, what's that? Little kiss. Welcome to the table. <laughs> and Jesus says, you anoint my head with oil. Again, a normal, regular gesture of hospitality. It's hot outside. You've been working. You've been walking. These are just nice things to do so that you don't smell so bad when you sit next to somebody else on the couch. But Simon did none of those things. So Jesus contrasts this woman's work with Simon, and basically says, hey, she is the real host here. Simon, your party sucks. (laughs) But this woman is throwing a good one. It cost her herself. She laid a table for me before my enemy. She anointed my head with oil. She loves like me. She's the Christ figure in this story. Simon, you could learn a few things from her if you want to throw a better party in the future. She is showing what the love of God actually looks like. Missio, that is the gospel. This woman has experienced a love that frees her to be honest and wildly brave. She knows who she is. She knows that she is not a category to be rejected, but that she is a woman deeply loved. And so she crashes a terrible party in the name of love to throw a better one. 
That is what we celebrate as we gather at this table every single week. Every single one of us in this room, regardless of who we are, regardless of where we've come from, regardless of we're more like Simon or more like the woman or more like the disciples who are just weirdly watching from outside, where are they? But you know, you're just like, what? Every single one of us is invited to the table to experience a kind of love that frees us to be honest with ourselves, to know ourselves as deeply love. That is the truest identity. We're invited to the table so that we might be freed up to be brave, to be honest, to see ourselves as we really are, to see those around us as we really are, and in the middle of it to notice that God is with us at this table already. We are invited to be empowered by the love of Jesus so that we, like her, can risk in love. So that we can crash a few parties to throw a better one. You see, that is our invitation today and every day. It is to be like this woman. To be like Jesus. To come to the table, maybe in the presence of accusations, our own or others, and to know ourselves as God already does. Deeply loved. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your party stories. For the way you show up in parties, the way you disrupt parties, the way you are willing to just turn away from exclusionary, prideful, parties that are all about our own moral whatever. You're willing to turn away from those to be present to us, to be with us as we risk and love to lay a new table. Jesus, I ask you that today you would meet us. That as we come to this table, maybe in the presence of accusations, our own or others, or things we've inherited, or stories that we have just told ourselves on repeat, God, would you turn towards us at the table? If we come with a ton of moral superiority, would you challenge it? Would you free us in love to, like Paul, know who we are? And encountering us and meeting us here, would you send us from this place party crashers who enter into the world around us to disrupt exclusion, moral superiority, shame, and sin with the goodness, love, and welcome of you? We pray these things, Jesus, in your good, good name. Amen.